This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. It's cold and damp outside. Uh, we're nice and warm. Huddled in here in uh, Liberty Village in Toronto. Tim Spreen behind the board, your concierge. Now we, uh, we have some dire news. Uh, Fukushima, of course still uh, dumping uh, radioactive waste into the ocean and, of course, the, uh, the, um, the cores. Uh, we could be in a, basically a China syndrome over there. Now we understand that a typhoon may hit Fukushima sometime tomorrow, something like 15 inches of rain. The news just keeps on getting worse, folks. I don't know what to tell you, but... Uh, uh, we also have, of course, more revelations of, um, uh, I, I, I would call it the uh, soft march towards totalitarianism in the United States. Now we have the CEO of Yahoo saying that, uh, you know, she feels uh, that she'll be imprisoned or labeled a traitor if she fails to comply with uh, demands from the spy agency, turning over data. And we're hearing this again and again from Internet providers and uh, recently, there was a court case, I believe, out of Colorado in, in which uh, another provider basically said the same thing. His company was ruined because he didn't want to comply with uh, the spy agency's demands. This is going back prior to about six months before 9-11. So there you have it, my friends. Uh, it almost makes you want to step into a time machine and... Uh, Get the heck out of Dodge. And why don't we do that tonight? In fact, we're going to dial it back about 40 years, 41 and counting to be precise. In uh, June of uh, 1972, of course, we had five uh, men in suits breaking, in surgical gloves, breaking into the the Watergate uh, Hotel, which housed the headquarters of the Democratic National Convention. And, of course, we know what uh, basically... What unfolded after that, it uh, culminated in the resignation of Tricky Dick Nixon back in uh, August of 1974. I remember that. Uh, I was eight years old at the time when, uh, when the Watergate hearings were going on, and I really didn't understand 
what that was all about, and I, I have to be honest, I'm not sure I do now. However, a new book out is going to offer up a rather controversial, some would, some would uh, label it revisionist history, but a, a controversial uh, take on what Watergate was all about, not the Woodward and Bernstein version that, that has come down over the past 40 years and uh, recited like a mantra. Of course, many of us have seen all the president's men. Uh, but this is an entirely different take. The real Watergate story. It involves a D.C. call girl who was running a prostitution ring in D.C. at the time and revelations contained in her little black book. Here to tell us about the real Watergate story is the author of White House Call Girl, Phil Stanford, who's a true crime writer with a special interest in political corruption. His work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post Magazine, the Washington, the Washingtonian, rather, Rolling Stone, Columbia Journalism Review. He's worked as a magazine editor and a licensed private investigator and was a columnist for the Oregonian and the Portland Tribune. His latest book, as I say, is entitled White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. Phil Stanford, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, great to be here. Uh, for those uh, listening in tonight who maybe, like myself, were very young during the Watergate break-in, Mm-hmm. Uh, or weren't around at all. Just give us a, a, a brief timeline of what went down in June of 1972 in the early hours. Well, um, yeah, it, it is uh, necessary to acquaint people, uh, once again, uh, with this, what was really the biggest political uh, scandal in, in, in uh, the last uh, 40 years, anyway, in, in U.S. Uh, history, the uh, and it's, it all started because five five burglars who had uh, who it was quickly discovered had ties to the White House uh, were found about two uh, thirty in the morning uh, in the uh, headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate. Uh, everything after that, of course, was called Watergate. This Watergate, that, and um, the. Uh, it took about a, 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 a day to, uh, to track the burglars back to the White House, and then for the next two uh, uh, two years, seventy two and seventy three, the whole story started unfolding, and, and the entire nation was uh, enthralled. I guess you'd say uh, uh, there was prosecution, there were Watergate hearings, Senate Watergate hearings in nineteen seventy three. This is the fortieth anniversary of those hearings, and a lot of. Uh, Documentaries are being uh, Woodward and, and uh, Redford have, have revisited uh, all the president's men with a documentary, uh, and uh, we are we are coming out on, on the 40th anniversary of that too. But it was a a huge political scandal, uh, and I would say you know greatly misunderstood at the time. And at the time, uh, it was dismissed, I guess, by the uh, the White House press secretary as being a third-rate burglary. Uh, so. Again, the Watergate Hotel housed the Democratic National Convention or National Committee um, uh, headquarters, and uh, Nixon was in the midst of a re-election uh, campaign. So, right. what uh, what 
I guess, was the official version of, of why uh, Frank Sturgis and James McCord and, and Bernard Barker and, and uh, Martinez and Gonzalez, uh, who, who had you know ties, obviously, to the Cuban community and the Bay of Pigs and the CIA. What, what were they after? Why did they break into the DNC? Okay, well, the conventional explanation uh, that comes to us from the Senate Watergate Committee uh, is, is that they were there to get uh, to do some political spying on the Democrats, uh, specifically on Larry O'Brien, who was chairman of the Democratic National Committee and had offices, uh, an office uh, in the in the, DN, uh, in the DNC. Uh, the fact is, though, when the burglars were uh, apprehended, they were nowhere close to Larry O'Brien's office. Uh, they were out in the, in the larger area. Their photo, uh, photographic equipment was set up on a uh, filing cabinet or a desk that belonged to one of the secretaries. Uh, and when the arresting officer grabbed one of the burglars, uh, Martinez, uh, or, or, or uh, told him to put their hands up the ball. Uh, Martinez reached it, uh, you know, having assumed the position, you know, uh, feet spread, out, hands against the wall, tried to reach something out of his coat pocket. And, and when he did that, of course, uh, one of the, uh, the cops thought he might be going for a gun. He wrestled him to the ground. And what he found was that Martinez had a key attached to a little notebook. And, and, and as the FBI found, uh, discovered in the next uh, few days, that key belonged to the desk of that secretary. Now, that, that's significant, uh, and, uh, very significant, and, but completely overlooked in almost all the accounts uh, of Watergate to this time. And, and as, as Jim Hogan said uh, in his book, he, he was the one who who's, uh, started this in, in a, a book, Secret Agenda, in 1984. It's the key to Watergate, because that, what, what the, according to the information we have, according to the information that I've developed much farther than anyone, I think, than before in White House Call Girl, there's every reason to believe that that phone, that desk, uh, uh, belonged to a woman who was making connections with the Call Girl operation about two blocks down uh, Virginia Avenue in the Columbia Plaza. And that's where... Uh, that's where people just don't want to go in this country. That's where the uh, conventional media is scared to tread. Phil Stanford is with us, the author of White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. Let's talk a little bit about this, this uh, prostitution ring, uh, call girl ring, if you will, in D.C., mm-hmm. uh, and, and spend a few moments discussing who this Heidi, is it Riken? Riken, yes. Who was Heidi Riken? Heidi Riken... Uh, was a ex uh, stripper, um, ex nude model, ex stripper, uh, who uh, tried to get in the, uh, the business about 1960, uh, and it was quickly discovered she wasn't much of a, uh, a dancer. So uh, the mob uh, people she associated with uh, put her to work, and, and for the next uh, decade or so, and, and beyond that, uh, because that takes us through Watergate. She she was the mob's girl. She was uh, she carried money for them. She they used her to meet 
Uh, the gamblers used her to, uh, to get inside information on professional football players. She'd do that by getting close to them, and then she'd be able to report on injuries or uh, problems they had that might affect betting. Or uh, who knows, because the, the, the gamblers were uh, interested occasionally in, 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 in fixing games, what she, what she might have had to do there. But she, the mob used her to meet people. She was close to uh, the top guy in the D.C. mob named Joe Nesline. Uh, Nesline is uh, a, a very uh, heavy-duty character with, with ties to uh, mobsters like Meyer Lansky, uh, he, uh, with, to Jimmy Hoffa, as it turned out. Frank Costello? Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure. Of, I, 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 I think I've, I've uh, seen that connection also. He was, uh, he, he, he was no uh, small-timer. He ran the numbers... Uh, in, in Washington, D.C., he had connections to the top guy in Louisville. Uh, Heidi had been a girlfriend of his. She got sort of pushed uh, out by Josephine Alvarez, who married Nesline back in, in the early 60s and, be, uh, and became a, a close friend of, of Heidi. Uh, I, I rely uh, in my book a lot on what Josephine uh, Alvarez has told me. She's, now, Heidi's uh, father. Heidi's father was uh, was he a U-boat commander during the Second World War in Germany? No, Heidi's father um, was uh, an enlisted man, and, and somehow at one point uh, during Watergate, uh, Heidi was seen at uh, Nathan's, uh, a watering hole in Georgetown, with uh, Mo Dean, her good friend, uh, well Mo Biner at the time, later became Mo Dean. And the gossip columnist, uh, or maybe she was even Modine by that time, a gossip columnist said something in the Washington Post about how the Modine was seen with um, this a beautiful blonde whose father had been a U-boat commander. So basically, uh, three-fourths of it was right, but uh, Heidi's father got a big promotion in the process. So he was an enlisted man in the German Navy. So he wasn't. Right. A, so there's no yeah. Nazi connection here, in other words. That, yeah, well, uh, in, in the uh, in World War Two, he was he was right. uh, uh, in, in the German Navy. So so he was uh, uh, wore a Nazi uniform, and the family immigrated to the United States uh, in the in the early fifties. And Heidi was fourteen at the time. Uh, she uh, got out of high school in Reading, Pennsylvania, uh, enlisted in the army. Uh, it was in Washington, D.C., was Miss Fort Meyer for a while, uh, at one time, and, and, and that's where she, she, a photographer who took her picture asked her if she'd like to do some nude photos, and that's how she got started. All right, and as we'll see, we'll take a time out here, uh, Phil, as we'll see when we come back, uh, Heidi would become, would, would, would be at the center of a call girl ring that would ultimately, perhaps, according to at least this fascinating version, bring down the 37th president of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Back with more of my conversation with Phil Stanford, talking about the real Watergate story, White House call girl, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back, friends. I neglected to mention off the top, we have a new affiliate, KBURAM 1490 in Burlington, Iowa. So KBURAM 1490 joins The Conspiracy Show family. Thank you for uh, making us part of your team. And uh, we will I, – I, I'm just looking at my notes here. It says actually they'll be uh, – uh, they'll start carrying the show <clears throat> on October the 5th. So uh, 
they've officially signed on. They'll start carrying the show October the 5th, and when that date rolls around, we'll, uh, we'll say thanks again to uh, KBUR AM 1490. Phil Stanford is with us, and uh, we're discussing his book, White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. Of course, for the last 40 years, we've only heard the Woodward and Bernstein perspective on Watergate, and finally, we're getting to hear the other version uh, courtesy of Phil Stanford, and the contents of a little black book that belonged to call girl Heidi Riken, uh, who passed away some, uh, I, I guess, well over 20 years ago. But uh, uh, now back to Heidi Riken and, and uh, how she, uh, you know, b- became the uh, this this the center of this this scandal, this right. political scandal. Now. What was what was the role then of the DNC in this call girl ring? Were they sending her clients, uh, uh, politicians, senators, judges, celebrities? How what was well, the DNC's? Uh, uh, probably uh, yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. They were sending clients, and uh, you, you know, politicians dropping in from uh, out of town were, were probably the most likely ca- uh, uh, candidates. Uh, she was also. Uh, and and uh, for, for to be sent by uh, the DNC, of course. Uh, but she was also making contacts in the White House on her own uh, at, at, with the State Department um, as well. And she um, and she's copying all these names and numbers down in her little black book. Uh, so I mean, well, well now the, the little black book is her address book. She Heidi Heidi was not what you would call a madam. I mean, she she was doing that uh, uh, for the mob at that time. Okay. But she was a party girl. She uh, she wanted, you know, if, if she'd had her druthers, she would have been the next Marilyn Monroe. You know, the, her problem, she was beautiful. Uh, she could do a good Marilyn Monroe imitation. But she didn't have that talent. So she ended up doing, uh, working as a courier for the mob, doing, meeting people for the mob, and in this case, running a blackmail operation for the mob the um, it, it was uh, and it's always difficult to piece these things together especially when the intelligence agencies get involved but that's what it appears was going on here all right you mentioned earlier that uh, she had a friend I guess who later turned out to be her roommate uh, by the name of Mo or Maureen uh, she later to become Maureen Dean the wife of uh, white uh, Nixon White House aide John Dean Right. Who also figures very large, of course, in this political scandal. But uh, uh, tell us about her relationship with Maureen Dean and, and why that's significant. Well, uh, it, it's significant, first of all, because uh, Maureen Dean later married John Dean, uh, the counsel to the president, who uh, some people, uh, some scholars think, uh, as, as counsel to the president running his own little intelligence act, uh, activities actually uh, ordered the, uh, the, the Watergate break-ins. Well, what we do know for sure is that uh, once the burglars were caught, uh, he directed the cover-up for the White House. So uh, the connection between Mo and Heidi is important because there's a connection between Heidi and John Dean. Uh, Mo, Mo Dean uh, was a very good friend of Heidi. They met in, in Texas or New Orleans, one of those places, it's not clear. Uh, and uh, they, they were roommates. They, they traveled together. Uh, for several years, Mo moved back to Washington with Heidi from Texas. 
and uh, Heidi, uh, for her part, you know, her, her job was to meet people for the mob, uh, uh, did this uh, <laughs> with a great deal of enthusiasm, and her book has uh, names of people and uh, of officials in the Nixon administration, of, of, of course John Dean, of course Mo, uh, his wife, uh, girlfriend, later wife Mo, uh, but others too, and, uh, including Jeb Magruder, who's a very important character here in, in, in the whole story. So, in, in other words, <laughs> John Dean, who, as you say, at the very least orchestrated the cover-up after the five plumbers were caught breaking into the Watergate Hotel. I mean, uh, his wife is uh, very good friends with a woman who's connected, deeply connected with, with the mob and is running a, 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 a blackmail operation on their behalf. Uh, right. So, so that's not, you know, that in itself would have been a, a huge scandal had that ever, uh, you know, broken in, in, the, in the press. So then if there, if the, the, the rationale for breaking into the Watergate was not, you know, to get the, 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 the Democratic playbook for the next election, it was, is to, it was to get some information that, what, uh, would have embarrassed John Dean or... The, or well, I, I, let's, let's just assume, you know, for the, uh, the sake of argument, or for the sake of exploring this, this so-called call girl theory, what John, if, that John Dean did order the break-in through Jeb Magruder. Uh, Jeb was a guy he could manipulate pretty well. He was the acting chairman of the committee to re-elect, and, and he was the one... With the unfortunate who, acronym uh, CREEP. <laughs> CREEP, yes. 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 And, and, and um, he was the one who actually gave the marching orders to the burglars. There were two, two different burglaries, one in May and then the one in June when they got caught. Uh, so uh, just why... Supposing that you know, uh, for the, uh, once again, for the sake of argument, that, that, that Dean w- was did want the burglars to go in the first time. Uh, more more than likely, it would have been to collect sexual information himself. Uh, that's a, a, a tried and true way of, of advancing oneself in in, in Washington uh, politics. Anyway, always has been having. Uh, uh, I guess for uh, yeah, having getting dirt on other people, so you know you can you can Democrats and Republicans. Yes, yeah, and 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 intelligence agencies as well. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was famous for it. The CIA had its own safe houses back there, uh, uh, places where they'd experiment uh, use, uh, on on unsuspecting people using drugs. That's been well documented. Places where they'd entertain. Uh, their, their friends from abroad or wherever or with prostitutes. Uh, the, everyone collected information. The, the Washington, D.C. police force had its, its own intelligence uh, operation. Uh, it had their own interest in, in sexual uh, information on, on politicians of, of, and, and, and officials of, of both parties, of, of all parties, yes. So was Dean also interested in protecting... Uh, his, his wife, or was it, was was he afraid that somehow uh, his wife Maureen would be caught up in this snare as well because of her relationship with Heidi Riken? Uh It is um, it, it's it's a matter of speculation. Uh, uh, Dean, of course, uh, uh, 
would would deny having anything at all to do with this. He denies that uh, that Heidi uh, connection is important. Uh, he he uh, dismisses the whole theory as you would expect him to. Um, but why? There are two different burglaries. They might have had different motives. Maybe the first time, uh, let's say, he, he wanted to collect the information. The second time, uh, it might be different. It might have been defensive. Uh, and, and here's where it really gets complicated. It's, it's, it's a good thing to be on a conspiracy show to talk about this, because these guys definitely do conspire. And uh, it, in this case, it, it, it's... it's it, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to reduce the story to sort of manageable terms here, but uh, one of the, a, a, a lawyer who was sort of a hanger-on at, at the Heidi operation in the Columbia Plaza, he used to report to her on, on what the vice squad was doing because he was paying them off anyway, um, got busted. And uh, when the, the FBI busted... Uh, for, uh, for small-time prostitution operations, he, he he too wanted to be another Bobby Baker, wanted to uh, build a career on doing sexual, uh, uh, providing sexual favors for politicians, and that that was his uh, his his silly dream. Um, but so he was. This came to the attention of the FBI. They raided his office. They got his address books and his his, his office books from his secretary, and in those books. They discovered not just Bailey's friends, but these women at the uh, Columbia Plaza who were connected to Heidi. Uh, and it created a huge panic uh, in, in, uh, in certain circles in Washington. Uh, what were they going to do with this? And so uh, what they did was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and this goes to your question of was he trying to protect, uh, was John Dean interested in protecting his wife? His wife's name was, according to Bailey, and according to his secretary, uh, his sister, and according to the prosecutor, who uh, said so in a taped interview with uh, Len Kolodny, who wrote another book on this subject back in 1990. The Silent Coup. Uh, yes. Uh, it, it, that uh, Mo Biner's name was in it. They called her, uh, you know, they, they knew her by the initials. Um, Again, this uh, is Mo Dean, John Dean's uh, wife. Yeah, Mo, Mo Biner, that, that was the, uh, that's the woman, uh, that was uh, John Dean's girlfriend and, and, and Heidi Riken's roommate. So, yes, uh, he could very well have been worried about that connection. Well, the, the interesting oh. thing is, and you, 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 as you point, point out, you know, we, we tend to look back and, and, and according to, uh, the official Woodward and Bernstein version, if you will. John Dean was supposed to be one of the good guys. Yes, he admitted that he had participated in the cover-up, uh, but that's he only learned about it afterwards, and he was trying to protect his boss, the President of the United States. Uh, and then he, you know, he was sort of a key witness uh, for the prosecution, if you will, in, in the in the hearings. We look at John Dean as the good guy, but this does not paint a very favorable picture of uh, John Dean. Well, you know, it it, it is remarkable that uh, normally sensible uh, news organizations would view someone like this as an authority on the subject. He was a player, and his, his role uh, was always very much in doubt, uh, to say the least. But, I mean, 
and here you've got a guy, and, and, and he's, he's sort of the darling of a lot of liberal media because in addition to having uh, testified for the right side uh, in, in, in the Watergate, uh, he has since written a book called uh, Conservatives Without Conscience, attacking the George W. Bush administration. And so uh, he, they're, they're even less likely to question his story about Watergate. But, he, you know, look at this guy. He's a convicted felon, disbarred lawyer. There are those who thought he uh, ordered the break-in. He certainly ran the cover-up. And, and when he saw that the cover-up wasn't going to work, he made a deal with the prosecution. He cut a deal with the prosecution. Ended up serving and, only four months. And to, and to save his neck, you know, uh, he started turning in his, his uh, fellow co-conspirators. You mentioned, so, uh, let's go back to the five plumbers for just a second here, because I, right. I want to flash back to the, was it Gonzalez? When, when he was uh, apprehended, he had this little notebook with a key attached to it. That was Martinez. That was Martinez. What was that notebook? Do we know? What was that key? It was a, a key to a desk. I, you know, I'm not sure just what the, was in the notebook. It was taped to the notebook and separated. The key is in the FBI evidence the, the, uh, uh, file. Uh, the, uh, the, the notebook, as far as I know, is, is not particularly revealing. But it's the key that's revealing. It was the key to the desk of Maxie Wells, who, according to this theory that we're, uh, the White House call girl is all about, uh, was the was was where the calls were coming from to Heidi's Colgo ring. So that that's what the key was. Key was to that desk. So you you have to assume that there was something in that desk that they wanted to get. Was it information uh, that would have been damaging to Dean or, or to uh, Mo or, or 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 was it uh, were, were they trying to? Get information on other people as well. We don't know. All right. We'll come back, Phil. I want to talk about, we will get around to the actual uh, little black book and how it came into uh, uh, your possession, or at least how you were uh, able to have access to it. Sure. And uh, But we also need to talk about the 37th president, Richard Nixon, and whether, uh, you know, how history should now view him in light of this. Was he just caught up in this? Was he, in fact, an innocent? We'll, uh, we'll get to that as well. Phil Stanford author of White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. Stay with us. And we're talking to Phil Stanford, author of White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. And, uh, you know, we're all familiar with the All the President's Men uh, version. Uh, great film, Robert uh, Redford, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a sanitized version that what the Watergate break-in was all about was, you know, the, the, those in the White House, the Republicans... Uh, trying to spy on their political rivals, the Democrats, whose headquarters was at the, the Watergate Hotel as Nixon was preparing for uh, re-election. And uh, what it may all come down to, as it often does in, uh, in uh, the corridors of power, was sex, a prostitution ring or a call girl ring. And uh, some notes, perhaps, scribbled down in, uh, in a black book or addresses and names belonging to a call girl by the name of Heidi Riken. So wh- what what are we then to make of the role of, of Richard Nixon? Uh, in, in Kolodny's book, The Silent Coup, he, he's basically saying that that it was all John Dean, really, and Nixon was 
uh, the scapegoat. He was sort of just caught up in this. What do you make of that? Well, now, uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty clear that Nixon didn't have any, uh, anything to do with the break-in itself. No one has seriously uh, argued uh, that's the case. Uh, no one has, has offered any evidence that, that that's what it was. Uh, it wouldn't be too unusual. You, uh, you know, I, I, uh, they all, they knew, they would know the, the higher-ups in this or any other, other administration would know that they had uh, people working in, in the, uh, for them who would take care of things like this. Uh, John Mitchell, uh, the attorney general, for example, knew very well that uh, there was, was an intelligence operation being run out of the committee to reelect. Uh, he met with uh, the head of, head of the, uh, the team, Gordon Liddy. Gordon Liddy made proposals to him. Uh, he accepted some of the, the uh, uh, proposals and, and, and uh, poo-pooed others. Uh, at a certain point, uh, he sort of let John Dean take over. And, and John Dean said, we shouldn't be discussing these in, things in front of the Attorney General. It's an it's a, uh, age-old arrangement that uh, uh, leads to deniability. Uh, if something goes wrong, then the uh, higher-up can say he didn't know anything about it. Uh, and, and that's what I think was happening here. Uh, Nixon himself, I, I'm not a Nixon partisan. I mean, th- this is, uh, I, w- when it was happening, I was working for a Democratic congressman. Uh, I was in Washington then. I, I've uh, never, uh, many people who, who uh, or some people who subscribe to this, any alternative theory on Watergate, are, are uh, sometimes uh, sometimes uh, people come from the right here because they think that Nixon was maligned. There, there are, Nixon was a corrupt uh, politician. I, uh, uh, he was uh, the, the only one to resign. He, he would have uh, been driven from office if he hadn't resigned. And and I think there are probably you know any any number of good reasons why he uh, should have been driven from office, but. Uh, this is not one of them. He didn't have anything to do with ordering the break-in. Uh, of course, when the burglars were discovered, he and everyone else in the White House, uh, with Dean's direction, were scrambling to cover it up and, and see if they could survive politically. But uh, and 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 he, uh, th- that is and, and uncovering the the cover-up is, is what uh, Woodward and Bernstein did for the Wash, uh, as well as other journalists did. Um, and, but, uh, I guess the other question though, the other question, Phil, would be what, then what are we to make of, of Woodward and Bernstein who have been sort of placed on this pedestal as, you know, these amazing investigative reporters, uh, for the Washington post. And, uh, and yet, I mean, they're not happy with any, any time, you know, someone comes out with a book like yours. Uh, talking about this other version that it, that it was about this call girl ring, right? Uh, you know, you're labeled as conspiracy theorists, and and what are they? What is? What are Woodward and Bernstein so afraid of? I mean, why why is this version so scary to people? Well, uh, the Watergate myth that's come down to us, you know, is is, is largely uh, the story that was developed by the Washington Post and by the special prosecutor. Uh, and and it, 
you have to realize this was all a very political operation. There were people who wanted to get rid of Nixon, not just the left. And, and the left certainly hated Nixon. The, the Kennedy Democrats hated Nixon. But the right, too. Uh, the most conservative elements uh, in, in uh, the Washington bureaucracies uh, considered Nixon and Kissinger dangerous liberals, if you can believe that. But that's true. Well, Nixon, uh, people forget it was Nixon who brought in the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, it was Nixon who uh, oh, uh, made the first uh, uh, gestures towards opening trade with China. It was Nixon who started talking with the Soviet Union for detente, and it was Nixon who was conduct with Kissinger, who was conducting secret talks with the North Vietnamese uh, to uh, uh, to get a treaty in Vietnam, and and he cut out the CIA. He cut out. Uh, well, most importantly, the CIA, and, and, and was running things out of this White House, and even had this little intelligence operation they were running there. The CIA was very worried about this, and they infiltrated the White House CIA, uh, the CIA infiltrated the White House intelligence operation. All five of those burglars, McCord, Hunt, and, 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 and the Miami crew, so that, that makes uh, uh, six, uh, well, no, five, uh, had CIA ties. Martinez, the one who was found with the key, was still on the CIA payroll. The other uh, guys from Miami had been Bay of Pigs uh, commandos. McCord, the sound guy, uh, uh, was faking, uh, had, had, had recently retired from the CIA, was still main contact, and, and, and evidence is was still working for the CIA. Howard Hunt, this was his third faked retirement from the CIA. Okay, we've got to take they, a timeout, Phil. spying on the White House. We've got to take a timeout, Phil. Back with more of White House Call Girl. Stay with us. Phil Stanford is with us. We dis- we're discussing the uh, the little black book that belonged to uh, White House Call Girl, Heidi Riken, that um, may have been responsible for bringing down the president, uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Uh, well, he resigned August 8, 1974, but of course the Watergate, uh, Watergate break-in was in uh, June of um, 1972. Now, uh, how did you get uh, access to this little black book? I mean, I, I understand it sort of was buried for about... Um, well, close to 20 years. Uh, basically, I got lucky. Uh, when I uh, decided to get back into this subject about two years ago, I started making calls around in Heidi's old neighborhood uh, in Reading, Pennsylvania, or rather the neighborhood of her, her, her mother's house. Her mother had, had uh, died some time ago. Heidi, of course, was, uh, had died in 1990. Uh, but I, I, I tried the neighbors to see if anyone knew them. Uh, I talked to a, a woman, an old lady who lived next door, who directed me to someone else uh, who was friends, uh, as it turned out, of Heidi's younger sister. And uh, that person said that, uh, they'd at least leave a message for me. And, and a couple months later, I heard back, and that's, that's how it happened. Her sister, uh, Kathy, had been keeping... Uh, Heidi's, uh, some of Heidi's possessions uh, in a safe deposit box and, and uh, this little black book, uh, actually two of them, one big one and one little one, uh, were in a safe deposit box all that time. And you convinced her that uh, to go public with this information? Uh, went down to Texas and, and, and talked with uh, uh, Kathy and her husband and, and uh, 
they, uh, you know, we were, we uh, came to an agreement, and, and uh, here we are. Yes. Well, when you and as you're flipping through this book for the first time, what's what's jumping out at you immediately that you you see as you know uh, sensational, or or at least you know uh, uh, damning. The well, the book was very useful to me in, in reconstructing the life of this woman who who had be, before had just sort of hovered over the the, the water this Watergate's uh, debate. It, it's sort of a phantom, you know. Uh, the, the people on the conventional side would would even dismiss her because you know she didn't seem to be quite real. No one had much information on her, so. By going back and looking at the names in the book and finding these people, I was able to reconstruct her life, and 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 so, uh, what one thing that became clear right away is her her very serious mob connection. She was carrying money from bookie to bookie and around the country. She was carrying money from the mob to to Switzerland. Uh, lots of mobsters in there. Uh, lots of professional athletes. Uh, that's because she was one of the, her jobs for the the mob was uh, meeting them and, and, and getting close to them uh, up close and personal as they used to say on the uh, sports shows and, and and then there were the, the politicians first of all uh, she was out in Texas during the LBJ years she was in Dallas meeting all the of, of LBJ's cronies and then uh, moved back to Washington uh, when uh, shortly before Nixon was uh, elected, and uh, set up shop there again, and uh, especially uh, through her new friends, the Deans, uh, she started collecting names of politicians uh, or, or, or officials uh, in, the, in the Nixon administration. So that's that was that's the overall importance of this book. Uh, a, a little black book that uh, I was able to get. Uh, it, it, it also sheds light on, on uh, the role of uh, certain officials uh, like Jeb Magruder, uh, who, who ordered the break-in, uh, who gave the marching orders for the break-in. So it, it was a, a, quite a breakthrough. So uh, let me ask you again, going back to Woodward and Bernstein, um, why didn't they? Why don't they give any currency to this story? Are they? Is there something they're trying to hide? No, I, I don't think they, they started out trying to hide anything at all. Uh, it's just that it, it doesn't fit with their story, and they, they've made their reputations, especially Bob Woodward, uh, has made a, a, a fortune on his, his reputation as as the. Uh, peerless Watergate reporter, and, and so it would, really wouldn't do any good uh, to uh, start changing things here. Uh, in fact, much of, of, of what they have doesn't really contradict uh, the, 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 the break-in story. It just doesn't have anything to do with it. They, they, they uncovered the cover-up in the White House. They never did anything more than just adopt the, uh, the accepted uh, version of what the, why the break-in occurred and, and let it go from there. So that means they had, had to uh, sort of accept John Dean as, as uh, something less than the, the weasel that he was. And, uh, they, uh, and, and they certainly didn't want to go back and, and, 
it, it would it would have really upset everything. And 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 what what you discover is you start looking more closely at their reporting, particularly Woodward. Woodward is the, obviously the lead guy in all this. Um, is that you know they they the 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 process they they went through to 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 bring down Nixon and all the president's men was was maybe not so sugar-coated as, as the one we have uh, been presented with. Uh, in, in all the president's men, of course, there's this character named, uh, they call Deep Throat. Well, uh, and, and recently, uh, an old FBI uh, official uh, fell, came forward, and, and everyone said, that's him. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's the case. In fact, uh, the uh, publicist for uh, the literary agent for uh, Woodward and Bernstein's first book, All the President's Men, said that Deep Throat didn't even exist in the first draft, and that it was only added uh, after. Of course, it was uh, also speculated that it was um, Alexander Haig. Well, Haig, Haig is uh, one, one good candidate. Uh, another F, uh, FBI official, Sullivan, is another candidate. In fact, um, it was probably several different people. Uh, but it, it was added to, to uh, uh, this what they brought together as sort of a, a, as a dramatic device well, the, uh, to the, juice up the story for Hollywood. The, the pairing um, of Woodward and Bernstein is interesting because uh, Woodward, as you point out in your book, has kind of an interesting background in the intelligence community. Uh, uh, was working at the, uh, was it Naval Intelligence or the Pentagon? Well, he was with uh, a high-level communications officer who handled uh, super top-secret stuff for the Navy, yeah. And, and, and he, he had, had, had these connections that, that you wouldn't expect a, a young man to have because of that job. Yes, that's very interesting. And then contrast that with Carl Bernstein, who, of course, I, be, I guess it was in the, in the late 70s, um, uh, wrote an interesting article f- that appeared, I think, in Rolling Stone magazine, in which he he said or he talked about the infiltration of, into the mainstream media by the Central Intelligence Agency. And so I just find that an interesting. Maybe I'm making too much of it, but here we have Woodward coming from, you know, an intelligence background, and there we have Bernstein, who's basically calling out calling out the intelligence agencies and and drawing our attention to the fact that they're. You know they have infiltrated the mainstream media, and they're shaping the messages that are getting out. Right, and and, and as as one of the uh, CIA officials had bragged, uh, they could play the the press like a uh, a mighty Wurlitzer. The um, yeah, some people think that that was Woodward's. I mean, Carl uh, Bernstein's shot across the bow. Uh, I don't know whether it was or not. Maybe he was just given a good story, but he had uh, he he, sh- he should have known what his uh, writing partner was up to, and, and uh, th- in fact, there, there are uh, CIA memos that uh, were, were published back in, in 1974, 75. Uh, there, people were actually trying to understand Watergate back then, and 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 and, and uh, Congressman Nebsey was holding hearings. Uh, uh, trying to uh, understand the CIA's role in Watergate. Uh, nothing definitive was found, but there, there were thousands of pages of testimony published, including CIA, uh, CIA memos in which uh, CIA agents were, were bragging to each other about how they'd manipulated Woodward's coverage of the events 
in a way that would, uh, uh, by feeding him information that would draw them away from the CIA's connection. And, and I'm saying the CIA's connection was, uh, among other things anyway, through uh, this, the, the call girl operation that Heidi was running for the mob, which was running, uh, running it for, the, for the, the agency. Did you learn anything in Heidi's Black Book about Richard Nixon's association with certain mobsters? No, there, there would be nothing there. She didn't associate with Nixon. She, I, I uh, doubt that she ever met him. But there is evidence, uh, and I think you allude to it in the book, that that uh, uh, you know some big mobsters back east, again Frank Costello, may have contributed to Nixon's uh, campaign for uh, the first time he ran for president against uh, Kennedy in 1960, and and I guess prior to that in 1950 when he was running for the U.S. Senate. Before that, when he was running for Congress, uh, Mickey Cohen in Los Angeles got some mobsters together and, and, and raised some money, uh, lots of money for Nixon. And, and over the years, uh, he accepted money from mobsters. His best friend, B.B. Rebozo, was connected to Santos Traficante. B.B. Rebozo uh, was, uh, you know, this, this is all very interesting. Uh, was from Miami, connected to mobsters. Bibi Rebozo was Nixon's best buddy. He had his own bedroom in the White House. He could go through uh, the, uh, the White House doors uh, without having to sign in. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, I, 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 Heidi, Heidi wouldn't have known about Nixon's connections to those, but she had her own mob connection. She was being used by the mob. The mob used her to uh, uh, lobby John Dean on uh, Hoffa's release, for example. I understand that, Dean is not too happy about this book. Uh, he is, I mean, you can sort of understand why he might not be, but uh, he, uh, he sent us, uh, sent the publisher, Farrell House, sent the distributor, uh, a threatening five-page letter even before the book was even released. So, you know, he just doesn't like the subject. You know, we're talking about 40 years on. A quick uh, answer, if I could get you uh, from you, Phil. Why does it matter at this point? Well, the same reason history matters anyway, I think. You know, the same reason the history of the Kennedy assassination matters. Uh, here's, here's the removal of a, of a president, uh, and the uh, biggest political scandal uh, since, uh, uh, since that time, and uh, we don't know what it was all about. I, 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 think, it, I think it's most important uh, because of, it, it, it was an intelligence game going on there. There, 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 were, uh, there was an intelligence operation from the White House, there was an intelligence operation uh, being run by the by the CIA, and in fact, what happened is <laughs> those two wires uh, crossed and, and short circuited, and, and with the burglary uh, being discovered, and 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 we had Watergate, we had a okay. huge scandal, but no one really is is able to uh, save. I got I got to go, Phil. But I thank you, White House call girl. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Phil Stanford. Hey, welcome aboard, friends. I want to shout out again to KBURAM 1490, our new affiliate in Burlington, Iowa, and uh, they'll begin broadcasting this program 
uh, down there in October, early October. Interesting, I just want to, uh, before we uh, sort of kick things into high gear here, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, regular contributor to the program, is standing by. Uh, this is a story I think she'd appreciate because we've talked about uh, um, disappearing and reappearing objects. The mighty Aphrodite had this uh, ring that she purchased before we were married, and it was very special to her. It had, uh, you know, uh, she had a strong emotional attachment to it. And then when we moved from our house uh, to our current location, it went missing. And she had long suspected, and it's been almost two years now, she had long suspected that, uh, you know, during the open house at the the old place when we were selling it, that maybe someone had walked off with it. You know, that's one of the problems with an open house. You have complete strangers parading through your house and going into your, your bedroom, and who knows? So she had just essentially written it off, and in fact, she was thinking about getting another one made, an exact replica. So... Uh, lo and behold, one uh, day very recently, uh, she's downstairs in the kitchen and um, uh, her aunt uh, is there. And her aunt is telling her uh, that she, and this was, uh, the mighty Aphrodite had not mentioned this missing ring to her. She just started offering up this information. You know, she, she says, all I wear now is costume jewelry because I keep losing all my nice jewelry. You know, I had, she had gold earrings and she had diamond this and nice chains and so forth, but she, it, it would get lost and uh, she couldn't find it. So she just stopped wearing it and um, uh, she started wearing, you know, costume jewelry. But then she, uh, I guess there was a prayer that she had learned uh, and uh, she would recite this prayer and then suddenly some of the jewelry would start showing up again. Again, this is the mighty Aphrodite's uh, aunt or her Thea, as we say in Greek. So about 10 minutes after that conversation, the mighty Aphrodite goes back upstairs and uh, reaches into her closet for a handbag up there that she hadn't used for quite some time, but she had, going back to when the, uh, the ring disappeared, she had searched every pocket, every purse, everything. We turned the house upside down. I remember this very well. So she reaches up into the closet to pick a, uh, a handbag uh, uh, out of the closet, and there, sitting Virtually on top of the handbag was that ring. And she was just absolutely gobsmacked, floored, could not believe it. She started uh, texting me like crazy. She said, you won't believe what happened, you won't believe what happened. The ring, the ring, I found the ring. <laughs> it's, you know, something like uh, out of a, uh, a Tolkien novel. But she, she, uh, she, we can't explain it. It's just, it, it was gone, nowhere to be seen, and then all of a sudden now it's, it's sitting right on top of a handbag in the, uh, in the top of the closet. So there you go. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley normally joins us the, uh, the second show of every month, but um, last week, of course, we were commemorating the 9-11th uh, anniversary. So we thought, well, we'll bring her back this week and we'll do the full hour. And she's got a brand new book out. It's called Dream Messages from the afterlife, Rosemary, of course, as I say, one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, presenting, and teaching. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm doing great. That's quite a story about the ring. Uh, yeah, that's a real head scratcher, and uh, I thought you might appreciate that. I'm probably missing I do some of the details. I deal with missing objects all the time in cases I investigate, and 
sometimes the objects just go walk about for a while and then they're found in some bizarre location. Sometimes they're missing for long periods of time. And I've even had cases where um, people had just given up on ever getting anything back. So um, if there's a prayer out there that uh, helps to do the trick, I definitely want to add that to my bag of tricks. But the, the other interesting thing, and we're going to get into uh, dream messages from the afterlife here in just a second, but the other interesting aspect of this is that she found the ring mere moments after having this conversation with her aunt about disappearing jewelry. That, to me, is just, you know, uh, just is the icing on the cake there. Listen, um, you and I have also talked about uh, the... Um, uh, you know, contacting uh, people on the other side. And I think I've, I've told you over the years, uh, I constantly have dreams that are populated by uh, dead family members. Uh, just the other night, I had another dream, and um, I was it was in a, like a tropical location, beautiful, and there was this long dock. And I walked, I'm walking down the end of the dock, and who's at the, at the far end of the dock, fishing, looking tanned and trim and healthy? My late father. And uh, he pulls out a string of fish, and he says, why don't you come join us for lunch? And I, and I said, I, I started to get kind of an odd feeling. It was almost like a, um, what do you call it, like a waking dream or a, 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 a lucid dream, where I was now aware that I was not, you know, uh, that I was in a dream. And I said, uh, no, I, I can't stay, Dad. I got to go. And he said, all right, well, maybe next time. And that's really, um, I guess, you know, what's at the heart and soul of, of, of your book, Dream Messages, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. We have uh, dreams with the dead many times throughout life, and they are, just as you described, sometimes so realistic, it's hard to know whether we're awake or asleep. And these are real encounters uh, since ancient times, People have believed in dreams as a between place where we can have genuine encounters with the dead and with spirits, with uh, the gods, so to speak, that are, these experiences are impossible during waking consciousness, but we can have them while we sleep. And they have a really powerful impact on people, especially during the grieving process. Well, my dad's been gone for 27 years. I mean, what what would have been the message? First of all, I mean, do you think, was that just a dream? And how do you know is what, what a dream is just a dream and whether you are actually being contacted uh, by those on the other side? Well, there are some distinguishing characteristics, and the dead can visit long after they've passed from the earthly plane. Most oftentimes, these sorts of dreams happen uh, within um, a close time period after someone has died. But the, the general hallmarks are uh, intense lucidity, feeling that you're awake and um, not asleep. Sometimes you might be aware that you're having some sort of dream, but it still seems like a real event. The, the dream has more logic to it. Uh, it's more like a real event, whereas many dreams are uh, kind of jumbled up and have strange kind of storylines. They have no beginning, middle, and end, where these these are more like waking life encounters, and they're purpose-driven. There seems to be some sort of message or emotional feeling imparted by the dream. The dead will return to give us life advice, and uh, sometimes we'll have these dreams. They're triggered by uh, emotional states that we're going through, and 
sometimes we can be um, in the midst of making a difficult decision or at a crossroads or going through a difficult time, and we'll have one of these meaningful dreams that brings some sort of new perspective or energy into waking life, and it helps, helps us sort things out. I thought maybe what we could do, Rosemary, is invite uh, callers to the program and, and, and share some of their dream visits from uh, the dearly departed. Uh, I would like to hear them. Well, tell me about um, how you began researching a, a, a book like this. This is a huge topic, obviously. Dreams have been important to me for my whole life from uh, a very early time. My mother had a lot of psychic dreams, and for her they were unpleasant because they often involved uh, foreknowledge of people dying. Sometimes they would be uh, strangers, um, celebrities, you know, politicians, you know, figures that would be in the news a lot. Sometimes they would be people that she knew, family members or friends. When she had these dreams, because of the distinct differences in these dreams versus ordinary dreams, uh, she knew that uh, the, these were events that were going to happen, and there, she, she felt powerless, and uh, so they were disturbing to her. But for me, hearing about them, uh, it ignited my curiosity about dreams, that, that um, they could penetrate time and look into the future and also into the past. So I really began experimenting with my dreams. I wanted to see the future. I wanted to send and receive messages. I wanted to have uh, remarkable out-of-body journeys. Uh, So I began paying attention to my dreams, keeping dream journals, learning about how dreams talk through symbols, learning about lucid dreaming, and uh, that has been a very important component of my entire life. So uh, I've always paid attention to the psychic and spiritual aspects of dreams. And, of course, my research brought me into contact with many people who had these remarkable dreams about uh, the dead and um, how powerful they were and uh, how they could help sort out grieving, how they uh, could bring uh, remarkable healing power into life, guidance, unfinished business, all kinds of things, and uh, that's the result of dream. Uh, the result then is dream messages from the afterlife. I think it's important for people to know that these are significant events that would um, not be just passed off as uh, oh wish fulfillment or uh, you know unresolved grief. They are genuine encounters that we are able to have with people who have crossed over to the other side. I've never considered myself to be a a psychic in any way, uh, or particularly intuitive, really. Um, And yet, uh, and I don't mean to be self-indulgent, and and, hopefully we can work some other callers into the proceedings and they can share their stories. So what we have to work with right now are yours and mine. And as I say, I I just... uh, Relentless. I, uh, I don't know about every night, and I, I really need to start keeping a, a dream journal. But uh, I would say, you know, several times a week, every week, I have dreams where there are, you know, dead relatives. And I have a lot of relatives on the other side. And, uh, you know, been a pallbearer probably over a dozen times, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles and uh, a few cousins. Uh, I mean, what am I to do with this? Uh, you know, why am I being... Um, haunted in this way? 
Well, it's not really a haunting. Uh, I would consider it quite a blessing. But a lot of times, the dead people in our dreams are dream symbols. We're not having uh, one of these genuine meeting places events. I think that those are special circumstances. And uh, according to the dead, it does take uh, a lot of engineering and and energy to break open that uh, barrier between physical life and the afterlife in order for these encounters to have. But nonetheless, uh, the dead also pass into our dreaming awareness as symbols. They represent something to us emotionally. Um, They may represent um, feelings that we had uh, from our relationship with them or at certain stages of life, and so we can interpret them the way we would interpret other dream symbols. All right, we'll take a time out, come back, and discuss dream messages from the afterlife, hot off the presses from our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And uh, you've got the telephone at your disposal as well. We'd love to hear your stories. Have you had a dream message from the other side? We'd love to hear about it. Stay with us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us and her brand new book out, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. And if you've had an experience, a dream, uh, where you encountered uh, perhaps a, a, a loved one, a friend, a colleague who had passed away, uh, and you're curious as to what that may have meant or, or whether it was just a dream or whether that was an actual encounter with the spirit of a, uh, a, a dead uh, relative or what have you, we'd love to hear from you. And before we get to Michael and Hamilton, I, I want to uh, point out that, as you point out in the book, Rosemary, it's just not uh, uh, the survivors having dreams about uh, you know dead relatives and so forth. You also talk about uh, people receiving or having dreams uh, that involve, let's say, a dying patient. Uh, there's a story here in the book about a, a, a woman whose um, um, mother, I believe, uh, had a long terminal illness, and uh, she, the the, uh, the daughter received this dream about, from the mother saying, don't cry, it'll be all right, I'm ready to go, or something to that extent. Do you remember that story? Uh, I have a couple of examples like that, and the most dramatic one for me was uh, a story about um, a mother who's in the hospital dying, and her family is so uh, emotionally torn that emotionally they can't let her go. And her daughter visits her in the hospital, and it seems like her mother is just gone. The body's there, but she's not there and and she brings a priest in and the priest tells her look you know your mother really is already gone but she can't really go physically until you let her go and uh, so she calls her sister and they talk about taking her mother off life support they can't bring themselves to do that and she has this dream where her um, her mother is literally, she's in the hospital and trapped in, in like a cage in her bed. And she's standing up on the bed uh, trying to get out like a trap door at the top of this cage. And she's calling out to her daughter saying, please, daughter, let me go, let me go. And um, this dream just really struck home with the daughter that uh, her, her mother's soul wanted to, to pass on to go to the afterlife, but she was trapped in this physical body and she was being held back by the prison of the emotional anguish that uh, her family was in. This dream enabled the daughter to 
uh, to realize that she really had to emotionally let her mother go, and she convinced her sister and other family members uh, to do the same, and she felt that her mother then was able to pass in peace. So uh, there are times when people have these these dreams where that's that's the way that uh, that we're able to be reached. Sometimes uh, patients who are uh, dying uh, of terminal illness pass in and out of consciousness a lot. They go into comas. They can't communicate very well, but they can come to us in our dreams. So what would you, how would you categorize that? Is that telepathic communication? Uh, it is. It's, uh, it can be telepathic, and yet this, this meeting in this between place. Plato called dreams the between place, and he said this, this is a landscape, a reality, where uh, it's not in the physical world and it's not in the spirit world, but it's like a bridge. And uh, we can have these, these encounters with people who either are on the other side or in the process of transiting. And so dream messages from the afterlife concern uh, a whole range of, of dreams um, with the dying, with foretelling death, with uh, messages literally from the afterlife, with previews of the afterlife, um, very powerful um, uh, experiences that involve uh, a little bit of precognition. Sometimes we see the future. Uh, we have clairvoyance. We see things that aren't physically present in this world. And we have telepathic communication. That is another hallmark of these kinds of dreams, is that we communicate with the dead, but it's through mental impression. Um, and interestingly, we have the ability to touch, to feel them physically. And that's one thing that people comment on, uh, that they're, they're stunned at uh, being able to reach out and hug someone who's died and uh, as though they, they were still living. That's, that's true. I'm glad you mentioned that. <clears throat> I forgot to mention when I uh, had this dream recently about seeing my father at the end of this long dock in some sort of Caribbean uh, setting, <clears throat> fishing, uh, and I walked to the end of the dock and I saw him, and uh, when we greeted, we embraced, and, I, and it did feel very real. Uh, uh, you know, I can, I, I can see the hat that he was wearing on his head, uh, the shorts, the shirt, you know, uh, but a, a younger, probably younger than I am now, a very much younger version of my father. Anyway, let's go to uh, Michael in Hamilton. Michael, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, thank you, Richard. Can you hear me okay? I accidentally put my phone on speaker. Loud and clear, Michael. Go ahead, yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'd like to talk to your guest, and I've wanted to talk to an expert about this for a long time. I've had a lot of this situation of what has been referred to by other people as dream travel. But this started in the 1980s, and it started, interestingly enough, I had a dream, and I, I guess I'll say right now, uh, my niece died when I was between four and six years old. And at that time, I would have been about 30 when I had this dream. And uh, in this dream there was a field and if you are familiar with houses that have uh, stairs from the outside going down to the basement there was only a set of stairs and this woman came out from this area and introduced herself to me and said hello and I said hi and anyway she said why don't you come and uh, visit with some people here so I went down these stairs to what looked like a rec room and there was all these people most of them very old 
And anyway, I said, what's going on and everything like that. Of course, I didn't recognize her. And I hadn't thought of this person for many, many years. And I never really knew this person because I was so young when she died. And, and anyway, at some point, I, we walked back up the stairs. And as we were walking up the stairs, there was a bunch of dolls sitting there on shelves. And I looked at them and she said, that one's me. And there was a little doll there in a blue outfit, you know, baby doll. And anyway, I said, what are you talking about? She said, no, really, it's me. And she started to laugh. And I said, I'm getting out of this charade. This is ridiculous. And I walked away from her. And, and I, all of a sudden, my blood went cold. And I knew who it was. And I turned around and I said, Lorraine. And I looked, everything there was gone. She was gone. This sort of a staircase going down into this rec room was gone and everything. And I realized who it was at that point. It took me five years to tell my sister about that. And when I did tell her, she said, well, this doll, what was it wearing? And I told her that, and my sister said, oh, my God, that's what she was buried in. Oh, I didn't Lord. remember any of that because of the fact that it happened when I was very young, and it was 25, 26, 27 years later. Well, Michael, my blood just went cold. Rosemary, what do you make of that? That's a remarkable it's story, Michael. It's an astonishing experience and very similar to uh, the types of experiences I have heard over the years of researching dreams. Um, some people have the ability to travel out of body uh, quite a bit in dreams. I think we go out of body whenever we dream, but some dreams are more markedly out of body. And we do get glimpses of the afterlife, uh, even years after someone has passed. Robert Monroe was an American broadcast engineer who accidentally discovered how to go out of body in a, a dreaming state of consciousness. He called it um, mind-awake body asleep. And he found that when he was in that twilight uh, period between uh, wakefulness and sleeping, he could catapult himself out of his body. So he spent many years exploring these otherworldly realms, including the afterlife. And he would go and see scenes in the afterlife and see the dead and have conversations about uh, what the, the afterlife was like. Uh, and I have met other people who have had similar experiences, and Michael's experience is very similar to those. I forgot one thing if you're still there. Yes, go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. But one thing that, that upset me a little bit when I thought this whole thing was a charade and everything, and I was looking at this, this doll with these clothes on it and everything, and she said, that's me and everything. She laughed at me, and she said, you people don't think we grow up, but we do. That is interesting, very and interesting. Th that, that is the case, that uh, people will uh, see um, the dead years after they've passed on, and they have advanced in the afterlife. Uh, what the dead tell us through dreams and through mediumistic communications and channelings is that uh, the afterlife is very fluid, and they can uh, they can advance in years. Uh, for example, if they die when they're a child, they can uh, advance into uh, an adult stage. Uh, I think that there are many kinds of experiences in the afterlife for us to choose, and uh, that some of us may go into very um, distant areas of the afterlife, distant uh, maybe vibrationally or spiritually, where it's it's harder for us to access and uh, they, they kind of pass then out of our awareness. 
but I've had that described to me as well. And, and conversely, it, when people die uh, in their later years, or if they are sick or injured or wounded uh, when they die, they when they appear to us, they are often much younger. They're vibrant. They're in a peak of health, like your dad was, Richard. Yes. Hey, Michael and Hamilton, a great call. Thank you for that. Thank you. Dream Messages from the Afterlife. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us and uh, her website, www.visionaryliving.com. How about for you personally, uh, uh, Rosemary? Have you, uh, have you had uh, particularly poignant uh, messages in your dreams from departed loved ones? I had a very remarkable dream visit with my father two weeks after he died. And uh, Dad um, had an aneurysm and died on the operating table. He was out in Seattle, and so, of course, I wasn't there. I was living in New York at the time, um, and I did not know about it until after he was gone. So uh, many people, when they cannot be present when a loved one dies, uh, this adds to the burden of, of grief and is an, another thing to work through with closure. And then sometimes these dream visits uh, really help with that. Uh, the, but they are not wish fulfillment. Now, in this particular case, uh, two weeks after Dad died, uh, I had one of these realistic, lucid uh, dreams where I was back in my parents' home, the house that I grew up, and Dad and I were sitting in the living room. Uh, Mother was somewhere else in the house, not present in the dream, and uh, I'm looking at Dad, and I know he's dead, and uh, I know in the dream that Dad knows he's dead, and Dad knows that I know that he's dead. And so I say to him, Dad, what are you doing here? You can't be here. You're dead. And uh, he said he knew, uh, but uh, he had all these things that he hadn't finished. You know, he died very suddenly. Nobody ever dies with their calendar complete. And Dad was a busy guy, and I could certainly understand that his abrupt departure, he felt that, you know, there were things that he he really wanted to accomplish and finish. But we, in the dream, we then engage in this lengthy conversation where uh, I'm convincing Dad, trying to convince Dad, that he can't stay on Earth. He, he needs to move on into the afterlife. And at the end of the dream, I see him going off into the distance, into what looks like a very big building. And I have a feeling it's like a, a working place, a factory or something, a place where you go to work. So the dream then had meaning for me on, on multiple levels. One was uh, I felt that I had... Uh, enable my father to make a full transition. Uh, it was some closure for me, and then there was symbolism, too, because if anything, Dad would want to go to work wherever he was. He would be wanting to stay busy. Well, unbeknownst to me, um, my mother, who was very psychic, uh, had been experiencing my dad in the house uh, for these two weeks after his burial, and uh, she could feel his presence in different rooms, and it was kind of an electrical feeling, and sometimes she could see kind of a luminous energy, and she knew it was Dad, and that he was still there. And then suddenly, after two weeks, he was just gone. And I shared my dream with her, 
and for me it was no coincidence that uh, his presence from the house ended at the time when I had my dream meeting with him about the need for closure and to just move into his new life. Rosemary Allen Guiley is here, and she says we can have contact with the dead in the most common and powerful way is through our dreams. Dream messages from the afterlife. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and your calls. Stay with us. Rosemary Allen Guiley is with us. Dream messages from the afterlife. We've been talking about you know people who have dreams uh, that are uh, populated by you know deceased relatives and so forth. Uh, but there's also, uh, as you point out in the book, Dream Messages from the Afterlife, uh, premonitions of, of death. And there's a very poignant, there's many poignant examples, but one I'd, I'd like to, you to talk about is, uh, you know, we just commemorated the, uh, the 12th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And you, you, you talk about uh, a woman who lost her husband uh, in the 9-11 attacks who was having premonitions. Can you share that with us? Do you recall that story? Uh, yes. Uh, some of the uh, victims of 9-11 had uh, dreams that forecast uh, their, their death. And, of course, um, uh, they were often passed off as um, uh, just, you know, unusual dreams or anxiety dreams. Nobody really connected them to an impending disaster. This all fell into place afterwards. But... Um, some of the family members also had dreams, and one of them that that uh, really hit home with me was a, a dream that a wife had about her husband. And he didn't work at the World Trade Center; they were from the Midwest. But he traveled to New York to have a business meeting on the fateful day and uh, died in the disaster. And she had a dream where uh, she saw him in a long line of people. And uh, they all look kind of somber, like they were going somewhere. And uh, she sees her husband pass by her, and there's a very strange figure, um, a a man-like figure behind him. And he uh, points to her husband and says to the wife in the dream, he's next. And it was just a, she wakes up in a, a cold sweat, just very chilled feeling, um, and worried about what that, that really means. And, uh, of course, within uh, a short period of time, uh, the, the disaster happens. So uh, there, were, there were other people who uh, even made comments about their own impending death or comments like, um, well, soon they would be going or they would be wrapping up their affairs and uh, pointing things out to their family like um, where the... The legal papers were the financial papers, uh, and all very eerie when you when you put all of these stories together. Uh, there's one that you mentioned as well. Uh, in fact, this lady wrote a book uh, about it called uh, "Messages, Signs, Visits, and Premonitions from the from Loved Ones Lost on 9/11." Bonnie McKeenery lost her own husband Eamon in the attacks. He worked at Cantor Fitzgerald on the 105th floor of the North Tower, and Eamon, interestingly, had survived the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, and he had led about 60 other people to safety. And in the weeks approaching 9-11, he started talking about having premonitions that this was going to, the, the, the World Trade Center tower was going to be hit again. 
and he was gonna he, he was did, gonna and die. He also had the feeling that um, the sense that he was going to die there. Uh, and uh, Bonnie collected other stories uh, about some of the victims where they would tell their uh, have disturbing dreams and then tell their family members that um, this is going to be my last summer. Um, I'm going to I'm going to be going soon. And, of, of course, this was all very upsetting, but nobody wanted to think in terms of uh, actual death. It raises a lot of questions, Richard, about destiny and time, you know, our time to go. And uh, many people have the, the conviction, and, and I'm one of them, uh, is, is that when it's your time to, to go, you're going to go. And maybe we have some choices about how we go. But um, dreams certainly point to, uh, to that certainty. There's also a great story in the book about Abraham Lincoln just t- 10 days before he was assassinated. Uh, a very famous dream where he uh, awakened to <clears throat> people in mourning in the White House, and he asked one of the guards, he starts walking through the, the halls and hearing all this weeping and wailing, and um, <clears throat> asked a guard who is dead in the White House, and um, it's the president. Uh, and so he, we very seldom have dramatic dreams of our own deaths, where we, we see ourselves uh, dead. Again, people will sometimes see themselves in coffins or in a grave. They're symbolic uh, of something traumatic or coming to an end in life, but uh, rarely uh, people do have these true precognitive dreams of of their own passing. I I think that this is such a shock to the system, even though we all know we're going to die at some time, it's still such a shock to the system that few people would be able to handle that, and evidently Abraham Lincoln was one of those rare individuals who could. All right, we'll take a time out, come back, and continue to talk about dream messages from the afterlife with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Just a programming note coming up in the uh, the weeks ahead. Uh, Colin Andrews, um, who is widely credited with coining the term uh, crop circles, uh, will be with us to talk about hidden technologies, powers of the mind, quantum physics, paranormal phenomena, orbs, UFOs, harmonic transmissions, and, of course, the aforementioned crop circles. That's Colin Andrews. And uh, also, Rodney Asher, filmmaker, uh, who was supposed to join us uh, a couple of months ago. In fact, I think while I was uh, doing the the program from Greece, we had to juggle things around. Rodney will be with us next week, uh, and uh, we'll talk about his documentary film, Room 237, which examines the hidden messages inside the films of Stanley Kubrick, uh, in particular, of course, The Shining. And uh, that's something near and dear to Rosemary's heart, because you stayed in that hotel where that movie was made, didn't you, Rosemary? I did several times. I I did some big group investigations there, and it's quite a place and very haunted. Now, uh, again, not to be too self-indulgent, but we were talking about premonitions, and... um, you may recall when I had this dream with my father, he um, he was fishing at the end of the dock, pulls out a string of fish and uh, asked me if I wanted to join him for lunch. And that's when I, I find that kind of unsettling. I thought, what is he asking me to stay like permanently? So I said, I can't. I, and I high- hightailed it down to the end of the dock. Uh, can you put on your dream analyst hat for a moment? Um, wh- wh- I mean, what, is, what does that represent, the string of fish and stay for lunch? And, or am I reading too much into it? 
Oh, no, not at all, Richard. I think uh, these dreams have to be examined from a symbolic aspect as well as from a literal aspect. Even even if it's a real encounter dream, it's always going to have symbology to it that's important. So the thing we look for is to to uh, take our associations with different pieces of the dream and relate them back to ourselves emotionally uh, within the context of things going on in daily life. So if that were my dream, uh, the, the fish would be a very important symbol to me. And what do fish represent? Well, they certainly have a biblical context where, uh, you know, the story where Jesus uh, multiplies the loaves and the fishes. Uh, they're a symbol of plenty. They're also a symbol of spirituality. Um, they can represent the intuition because they reside below the surface in the water, and the water is a symbol um, being invited to lunch, um, uh, sharing uh, something memorable. Uh, food is spiritual energy, and in dreams it often represents um, absorbing something spiritually. So for, for me that would be kind of a double symbolism. We've got food that's, that's highly symbolic from a spiritual perspective, and then the, the invitation to partake. So... Um, coming from the dead, then, uh, brings in another element, like um, uh, is that symbolic of uh, looking beyond uh, the physical for spiritual renewal or, or new energy, um, some sort of uh, perhaps emotional connection with, uh, with Father, uh, that pertains to something going on in life right now. All of these would be possible avenues for exploration. And um, then in dream work, then you, you get those intuitive hits in terms of, of what strikes home. Wow. Uh, you see, I'm such a linear thinker. I didn't even go down that path. I just thought when a dead relative asks you to stay for lunch, you know, get the hell out of Dodge because you may not come <laughs> back. Who knows? I don't know. What, what do you think would have happened if I had gone for lunch? Um, well, it, it might have been an interesting experience. Now, in real encounter dreams, um, there there is a barrier that uh, it seems like the dead are able to to come a little further to meet us than than us them. But there still is this point of transition, and sometimes they will tell the living, uh, "Well, I have to go now, and you can't come." Um, and we see them going away or vanishing or going across a bridge or down a hallway, something like that. Uh, sometimes people in the dream will ask to go uh, if they're in, in very deep stages of, of grieving. They will say, can I come too? And the dead will say, no, you can't. You have to stay here. So uh, I don't think that you would have been um, you know, kidnapped into the afterlife, so to speak, but um, there may be something around the theme of spiritual nourishment here, and it may relate to something with your father, um, something about your relationship with your father that would be spiritually nourishing to you. And um, All right, everybody pull up a couch. Try that. <laughs> couch trip. <laughs> Tell me about your father. <laughs> uh, the other uh, aspect, of course, and, and you dedicate... Uh, chapter two in the book is is um, deathbed visions or dreams uh, again these are the people that are are uh, preparing to leave this earth 
having uh, of dreams. And it sounds like a cliche, but uh, as you report in the book, people really do hear like angels, harps, and are surrounded by uh, by these invisible helpers. Isn't that right? They are. Uh, people who die in stages uh, from uh, infirmity, old age, terminal illness, uh, have increasing visions of the afterlife where the barriers between the two worlds start melting away and they will be visited by dead people, by spiritual helpers like angels. Uh, in parapsychology research, uh, these um, beings and the dead, they're called takeaway, uh, takeaway apparitions because they, they come for the purpose of escorting the soul into the afterlife. Quite often they see beautiful scenes, uh, gardens, uh, parks, vistas full of astonishing colors and beauty that uh, is unsurpassed on Earth. Um, and Robert Monroe, who I mentioned a little earlier, who did out-of-body traveling to uh, different places, including the afterlife, also commented that um, the park, a beautiful park, is a place of transition. So it seems to be like one of the first places that we go to after we die. And it looks earthly, but it's got unearthly colors in it. And the dead are there, and sometimes spiritual beings like angels. And we're greeted by peace, by beauty, love, comfort, and it eases the transition for us. So these scenes open up to people while they are in the early stages of dying. Uh, if if you keep having dreams about uh, a, a relative or someone who's passed on, and it's you know years and years and years have gone by, does that mean that they're trapped on a certain plane that they haven't evolved spiritually, or or is it possible you know that they they are in heaven and then they can come down to this plane to communicate with us? Uh, there are a number of possibilities, and sometimes repeating dreams uh, of the dead may point back to unresolved issues that we have. And uh, these would be repeating dreams with the same themes and could revolve around our relationship and issues. Uh, there are dreams where the dead come and ask the living for help if they uh, have not been able to complete their transition. And those fall into these intense, lucid, realistic encounter dreams. Uh, one of the ones I include in the book concerns um, a woman who died in a car accident and her brother had a, a dream of her in which he finds her wandering, uh, and she's cold, and she doesn't know where she is, and she's lost. She doesn't seem to recognize him very well. And uh, in the dream, a bridge opens up, and he takes her to the bridge, and on the other side he can see their dead grandparents, and they're reaching out to her, calling to her to come. And so she does go across the bridge and, and joins them. He believed uh, very firmly uh, when he awoke from that experience that uh, his sister had been uh, temporarily lost, um, probably didn't even know she was dead because of the suddenness of the accident, and that he was able to help her make her transition. Uh, some uh, faiths have, you know, uh, they prohibit, you know, uh, uh, you know, trying to communicate uh, with the dead or conjuring 
The Departed. Uh, but for those that are uh, interested in, in communicating with, with dead relatives and so forth through dreams, how, do, how, how does one go about it? Is there a sort of a tried and true method uh, before you go at night, where go to bed at night, where you can sort of not guarantee but come pretty close to guaranteeing a communication? We can certainly do things to encourage the, the contact and enhance the uh, possibilities for these kinds of dreams. Uh, these dreams are, are need-driven, and uh, they often happen spontaneously. Many people who, who have them, they're unexpected. But uh, it is possible to incubate dreams to invite contact and messages through setting intention when we go go to sleep, to have a meaningful dream, um, either message from someone who has died or contact with that person. And the dream may take the form of, of ordinary dreaming with uh, messages conveyed through dream symbols, but it's still meaningful, meaningful for us. Um, the dead have indicated that the conditions under which these real encounters take place are very complicated, and they often have just a short period of time uh, to to be with us in that state. Uh, and that the way we dream is an important part of it. Uh, I include uh, an example uh, where a, a mother comes to her daughter-in-law to pass a message on to her son, and when the daughter-in-law says, well, yes, I'll pe- give him the message, but why don't you tell him yourself? And the woman answers, I can't, because of the way he dreams. So uh, all of these are factors, and if we pay attention to our dreams and uh, invite the contact through intention setting at night, uh, we might be able to have then meaningful dream contact with the dead. Uh, how important is it to keep a dream journal, and, and uh, what sort of things should you be keeping track of uh, when, you're, when you're keeping a journal? It is important to keep a dream journal. The more we understand about how we dream uh, personally, we're going to be able to recognize the different dreams. And um, we can have very powerful uh, out-of-body dreams and and, um, uh, heavy spiritual dreams, uh, even beyond just meetings with the dead, and they are different from ordinary dreaming. So our unique dream language is, is going to show us that. And uh, if we know how we dream on an ordinary day-to-day basis, then we are better able to recognize the, the big dreams when they happen. Uh, dreams are uh, made out of emotion. Uh, they're about how we feel and how we feel, how we're doing in life, our emotional connections to other people, our, the emotional undertones behind our beliefs and uh, our expectations and our, our hopes, our aspirations, our anxieties. So it's always important to pay attention to the emotional tone of a dream, uh, how we are feeling emotionally in the dream and upon awakening and uh, relate those feelings back to how we're dealing with things in life. Uh, just almost out of time here, but just a, a thought occurred to me, you know, uh, we talked about dreams, but do, do we ever get messages from dearly departed ones in nightmares? Or is that a different kettle of fish? Uh, we certainly could. Uh, and 
they can, uh, in in many cases, they're going to be symbols in those nightmares uh, where they represent uh, something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, and uh, nightmares are often uh, about something that needs to be confronted, resolved, or brought into balance in life. And the dead can play valuable roles in that, too. All right, Rosemary, congratulations on Dream Messages from the Afterlife. Can we order that through the website, visionaryliving.com? Yes, I send it out autographed from my website, and it's also available on Amazon.com. And thank you for uh, my autographed copy. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Always a pleasure, Rosemary. We'll talk to you next month. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. Dream Messages from the Afterlife. That's... Number 50, I think, or 51 and counting. Uh, Tim Spreen, thank you as always for technical production. As I say, next uh, coming up in the uh, coming uh, weeks, Colin Andrews on the edge of reality and uh, Rodney Asher, the director of Room 237, hidden messages inside the uh, films of Stanley Kubrick. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.